Hey everyone, I'm Emily. And I'm Maria, and this is the Open Plan Podcast. We're excited to have you here. Join us in navigating life and architecture as young professionals tackling career, education, social lives, and everything in between. Keep up with us on Instagram at Open Plan Podcast. So now let's get into it. Hey guys. Hey guys, welcome back to Open Plan Podcast. We just finished our conversation with Danny Griffin. He's a longtime friend. We went to undergrad together, did a lot of studios together, and now he's at MIT. Um, Our conversation was so interesting. He has a lot to say about MIT and the culture and his process and what he's been doing there. So we really hope that you enjoy the conversation. But before we get into that, we have a little bit of an update. Yes. (laughs) Um... I am moving to Philadelphia. No, she's leaving me. And Maria knew this update. I'm not like surprised. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you didn't tell me. Yeah. So Ashkan got an opportunity up there and um, my job has kindly allowed me to work remotely. Amazing. So that kind of gave us the, the go ahead that yes, we are moving and Atlanta has been our home for three years and it's been amazing. And obviously I met Maria here. <laughs> So um, it's going to be definitely a bittersweet move. Um, Philadelphia for is where me and Ashwan met, and a lot of our family and friends are there. So that also kind of like led our decision to move. But just to update you guys, the podcast is not going away. No, this is the last one we'll record together for a while, but... In person. Yes, together in person. Um, we're at Emily's apartment this time. But yeah, this is the last one we're going to record together in person, but... We're going to keep doing this because we know how to record remotely now. Yes, and we can figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's kind of a really, really big update for us. Um, This next couple weeks can be kind of crazy. We're planning to move in the beginning of July. Um, And then our wedding is in August. Oh my God. So summer 2021, fabulous. (laughs) Um, Like this comment if you want me to go live at Emily's wedding. That'd be hilarious. Yes, Maria will be there. Jose will be there. Um, so excited. Yeah, but thank you so much for sticking with us and just bear with us for the next couple months because we're going to be kind of in and out. But this interview upcoming is going to be amazing. We hope that you enjoy our conversation. And now we're going to dive right into our conversation with Danny Griffin. We're in the studio with Danny Griffin today. He's a designer and researcher currently attending MIT as a Master of Architecture candidate. His research considers the evolving role of the architect at the intersection of spatial richness and technological innovation. Through his architectural studies, Danny seeks to understand the implications of digital and industrial productive capacity as they relate to space making. His background in robotic fabrication and systems integration have provided an appreciation for the challenges and opportunities associated with automation, mass production, and mass customization. So, welcome, Danny. We're so happy to have you. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so we know each other for a long time. We went to undergrad together at Georgia Tech, and then he went to Boston to go to grad school. But um, he's just had a very unique undergrad, a very, you know, he's crafted his path through the architecture industry to his cater to his interests. And we thought it would be really interesting to interview him, talk about what he went through in undergrad and how he made this, his decisions and what 
drove his choices. Yeah, um, we're excited to have you here and also excited to learn more about MIT and their grad program. Um, I think a lot of our listeners are kind of in the same boat where they're applying to schools and they're just curious about you know, their options. So it's great to have a little bit of insider intel for sure. Um, yeah, I'm happy to share. Um, so I think we're going to probably just start with um, diving a little bit into your background. Um, and yeah, just how about starting off with, um, I guess, what drew you to architecture in general? I'm not one of those people who from a very young age knew that I, I, I didn't even know what architecture was until maybe high school. And we had, my high school was one of those that had those career tech classes. Mm -hmm. So there was like intro engineering or like there was a crime studies one. That's so cool. (laughs) And there was, there was an architect, it wasn't even architecture at first. It was like a graphic design computer skills class where we started learning Photoshop and oh wow, like just doing nothing of consequence, just like Mm -hmm. messing around with logo design. And and then that same teacher was like a, she she actually quit architecture. She was an architect, but she thought it was too stressful. So she wanted to be a teacher instead. Oh, here's another career option. (laughs) Yeah. Right. But so she, she taught other classes and I took one of her more architecture focused ones where we were learning Revit. In high school? I haven't used Revit since then, but <laughs> it it was more fun than all of the science and math classes and everything to mm-hmm. me. So when I was picking majors at Georgia Tech, I was like, well, architecture seemed really cool. Georgia Tech didn't have graphic design, or I might have picked that. But mm. yeah. yeah, so that's how... I ended up in studio with Maria as a freshman. <laughs> nice. It's really funny because I feel like there's a common theme where everyone we've interviewed so far, everyone's like, I didn't know what architecture was. So, yeah. um, and we were even saying that no one knows unless their parents did it. Yeah. And if their parents did it, they don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> so it's always just people who kind of stumble in. Yeah. Um, but that's really cool. Um that your high school, you know, I even had that option to, yeah, to explore. Sure. I think that's very useful. Um, yeah, coming in, I think knowing at least a little bit of something was so much better than not knowing anything. I remember like when we started, I think I had I had started a semester in Brazil and we had had like an AutoCAD class. And that was like, oh, my God, like I feel so ahead already because some of these kids don't know any of the software. But then I didn't know any of the actual like design thinking yeah. things but then you don't like actually draft in school yeah <laughs> so I we used it for like a week you, i felt that way with the people who took like ap art in high school who were just drawing like amazing things and yeah like, wow just I like sketching all the time class. yeah oh really oh yeah i had just taken like technical stuff i would never have guessed with a little uh, teaser into the children's book you've illustrated <laughs> that you've ever drawn before <laughs> Um, cool. Um, so yeah, I guess it's kind of diving into your experience at Georgia Tech. Um, what are some things that stick out for you, I guess, during your undergrad, some highlights? Um, well, the first thing was, I, I guess like, okay, one, I came in with some, some credits 
from AP exams in high school. So being able to actually pick classes was fun. So I was like, I was, I, I took Japanese classes in freshman year and was just like, I was kind of just having fun with college, like yeah. the classes. I didn't know what I was going to do with that, but <laughs> I don't know. I was enjoying kind of the freedom of it. And then in sophomore year, I remember they introduced Grasshopper to us in like the media and modeling class. Mm-hmm. And I felt like at that moment, I found what I actually wanted to do. Like, Oh, wow. Like, I, d- I didn't care that much about drawing buildings the normal way and everything but once we started learning I mean basically it's just scripting or like computer science meets architecture mm-hmm. um I don't know yeah the project that I did with that was really bad by like conventional standards <laughs> or it was like a total failure but I got so into figuring all of that part out Right. And again, I didn't know what I was doing with that. And you were also a freshman, right? Or that was when I was a sophomore. Okay. Um, but no, Grasshopper is definitely very confusing when you first start, I think. Yeah. Um, I think he did the Grasshopper part very right. He just, the project itself just didn't fill oh, in the architecture right, requirements. Right. Like this couldn't actually be built. But... It was more of a sculpture thing, but everybody loved it. It yeah. was very impressive. Nice. Yeah, it was, looking back, it was very... <laughs> <laughs> Very sophisticated grasshopper in a really bad architecture project. <laughs> uh-huh. Nice. Um, and so, I was told that at like I remember at final review hearing that from everyone like you cannot draw plans this way. This is <laughs> like totally unacceptable. Uh, like, they're probably okay. like it's too early for you to be doing this. You need to learn the basics, you know. They're like, no, let him yeah. run with this. This is his. <laughs> this is his destiny. Um. So how would you describe, I guess, macro level what Grasshopper is for, I guess, our listeners who don't know what it is? You kind of mentioned scripting. I think it's just rather than making, rather than making decisions of like what the outcome should be, you're like setting up relationships for how things work together. Mm -hmm. And then you might control some of it, but you let other things just happen. I don't know. It's kind of hard to understand why that is so different, but it's a lot of like, when you design a building like that, sometimes you don't know what the final outcome will be until you like hit a button and it spits the final outcome out for you. Like Mm -hmm. it changes how you evaluate things when you're designing Mm -hmm. versus like you can, you can design like, I know that countertops of this height will be comfortable and like clearances but when you're when you're writing a script to do it, there's a lot more like looseness, and right. sometimes you're like leaning into those uncertain outcomes to design things that are really confusing mm-hmm. if you don't know the rules behind them. Yeah, it's very so, confusing. Yeah, <laughs> you just I mean, get a lot still, of grasshopper. It confuses yeah. me sometimes. Yeah, I think it's just the part that's confusing is. I mean, that's all of computer science. It's like, if it doesn't work, you you have to really dig through the thing and figure out why it's not working because oh, it's yeah. not obvious. Right. My, you don't know uh, where it's breaking. I was just going to say, like, Ashkan, my fiance, is a, um, a developer, and he was like, half my job is just fixing, like, a bug or something. Yeah. Like, I try to do one task, but half, that half the day is spent, why isn't it working? So 
I, I, he sees Grasshopper and sees obviously a lot of uh, similarities between that and coding and yeah. things like that. But I think it definitely opens the doors for more inventive designs, kind of like what you were saying, like options you didn't even know mm-hmm. existed until, yeah, you toggle something and you're like, oh, that actually looks kind of cool. Yeah. And then you just take it yeah. further, which it's like almost like a, an extension of your imagination, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Like, Subconscious. Yeah. You're like, I'll just let the computer. I feel like every time I've, I've used Grasshopper... Or I had the thought, oh, I'm going to make this in Grasshopper. It, I can never do what I had in mind. It, it always does something different. <laughs> or like the way that I have to build it, it becomes something else. Because obviously, I guess, I don't know if it's because I'm not that good at Grasshopper. Or <laughs> because the, the, the way that it works is just that it has its parameters. And you have to kind of work with what it, what it does for you. Instead of me telling it exactly what I want. Right. But. yeah it's i don't know i i almost feel like it's a different field of design than architecture or like i, I don't know mm-hmm. it's really hard to get it to do what you want yeah yeah and the people who are really good at it are not really designing buildings with it they're like i don't know i don't know spoilers my experience what i learned it was used for is like robotics and mm-hmm. a lot of facade consultants and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. are are like using it to solve really specific complicated problems that kind of get attached to buildings that architects make Mm -hmm. yeah so i think you did a great intro into um your your kind of journey into robotics so how did you find yourself i guess in that world while you're an undergrad yeah, well, completely unrelated to architecture. I had taken so many Japanese classes that I <laughs> qualified to go on the study abroad. <laughs> and I decided to do that instead of the architecture study abroads. Nice. Because <laughs> uh, I, I don't, I think at that time it was only a Barcelona study abroad. And I, I had studied Spanish in high school and I just wanted something different. So I did this like language business and technology program in Japan where I went to this Japanese university and the classes were like current events classes. So we would go on, we would like get on a bus and go see like a a power plant in Japan or. (laughs) That's such a change, (laughs) change of pace from architecture. Yeah. How did it feel taking classes, I guess, in other disciplines? for a semester? Was there any architecture kind of related? No wow. architecture at all. It was, I don't know. I remember during during that experience, I was a little bit stressed. <laughs> like, am I, am I just messing around here? Am I not making progress or like, cause I was learning stuff like manners for interviews and <laughs> oh. for a country that I wasn't really planning to like <laughs> live there. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Um, so I was definitely anxious about whether or not I was wasting my time. But then we toured one of the companies where the first robotic arms were made. Mm. And at that point, I had no idea about any of that. But I remember walking around and they, they were telling us about how like they only turn the lights on when people are there. Or like, normally these robots are making cars in the dark. And I was like, that's so wild because like obviously they don't need to see anything (laughs) 
and it's kind of creepy yeah yeah <laughs> just imagining like noises in the dark then just working away <laughs> yeah and i i remembered i had seen before i left for that summer a poster in the college of architecture with a picture of the dfl's robot and it was like advertising this was at the time when shawnee sharif was a phd student mm-hmm. and she she was doing her PhD on human-robot interaction. So she was teaching this intro to robotic fabrication class. And I remember being really intimidated by the course number because it said it was like one of those 8,000 level. Oh, wow. And like, I didn't even know. I I thought, well, if the numbers just keep going up, this must be way too high level. (laughs) (laughs) This was, you were a sophomore still or was this junior year yeah it was like between sophomore and junior year I sent the email from Japan after we got back from that field trip asking if I could be in her class I was like I don't know if I'm actually qualified for this (laughs) but But it's an intro no one is (laughs) yeah yeah you just need the interest (laughs) (laughs) it turned out that I was perfectly okay because it 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 wasn't it wasn't that complicated of a class like it it was an intro so but yeah that's I don't know that was how I got the courage to send that email and then every job I've had since then has like come from it's all been like one after another that because after I took that class Shawnee asked if I would TA the next version of the class and then Shawnee left, but Keith came, and then Keith needed a TA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this whole time, nobody else, I don't know, it was a weird situation because nobody else really wanted to use the robot. <laughs> like, Everyone's people, very scared of it. I, can I, I think people you know. were intimidated. Yeah, I think. very intimidating. <laughs> right. Yeah, people would take one class and then never want to use it again. <laughs> really? <laughs> You're like, I can relate. And he's like, I don't get it. This robot's pretty cool. I definitely did that. <laughs> wow. Um, do you want to, like, kind of quickly explain, I guess, what the DFL is and the robot and yeah. kind of what that means, I guess? Yeah. So, so people kind of, I know we can all kind of visualize right. it. Yeah. Um, but, the yeah, it's DFL, pretty incredible. The DFL is the, it's the Digital Fabrication Lab at Georgia Tech. And it's, it's this like industrial warehouse that's across the train tracks, kind of away from the campus. I, I guess it's part of bigger like architecture plus civil engineering research funding that like pays for this space to be filled with really amazing tools. They, I guess they just, every once in a while, they just buy new equipment. So they'll buy a water jet or they will buy... CNC router and at this time they they had purchased this industrial robot because what what I've learned is um these things get decommissioned from like automotive manufacturing and then they're kind of on sale for really cheap and so schools can buy them and install them oh yeah it's just a magical laboratory filled with lots of cool machines Right. That's and one way let, to see it. <laughs> yeah. They just let students use all of these crazy machines that. Yeah. yeah. And it's pretty unique, right? There, that This is not common at every school. 
Um, no. Since coming to MIT, I have really appreciated the space mm-hmm. in in Atlanta in general. But like the DFL is enormous. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So I think if you're interested in any you know, anything in that realm, kind of, you know, whether it's robotics or manufacturing or just being really hands-on, I think that that's an awesome thing to look at when you're looking at schools, like looking at their facilities. I think a lot of people come to Georgia Tech because of the DFL. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like you really have to make an effort to make sure that that is like part of your every semester activities. Because like Danny says, like a lot of people take a class here and there, like I did that um, in grad school. Because during undergrad, I just stayed as far away as I could. It's also physically far away. Yeah, it is physically far away. Um, But I was just really scared of it. Um, But in grad school, I made a point that I would at least take a class or two in the DFL. And I ended up taking two classes and a studio. You would be proud of me, Danny. Faced her fears. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, it's it's, it's hard to like integrate it into your your everyday kind of semester curriculum so it does help like if you have credits coming in to have that freedom and be able to take electives there or spend time yeah. there do your studio projects using that those machines and stuff like that right also it's just like the obstacles to like getting familiar with all of the tools and everything and like you're, you're gonna get shouted at for using the table saw wrong mm-hmm. probably many times yeah. I remember one of my goals was to be able to weld on my own just once before I left. I did like, that. <laughs> every okay. time I tried, I needed help adjusting all the settings and yeah. Welding is hard. <laughs> yeah, I I had to learn how to weld for for Keith's studio. Wow. It's oh, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess like so, you know, you, you kind of got super involved with the DFL and then into robotic classes, things like that. Um, when you started thinking about grad school, um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Like what your application process was like um, and what you were weighing, I guess? Yeah, well, so I knew that I, I mean, I knew that I wanted to go into a master's right after. I, I don't know. I didn't want, I didn't personally want a break between I thought I would be more likely to like finish if I just put t- did them back to back. So I was, yeah, looking at, I mean, I guess coming from a four-year degree, it's mostly three and three and a half year programs that you're looking at. And I, I wanted, okay, so I, I thought that I wanted another school that was also very digital fabrication friendly. Um, so like Michigan was uh, a really big, that was like my number one choice for a lot of the process. And I wanted, I'm trying to remember. I remember you checking the results and reading forums of all the kids that were like getting their acceptance letters during studio. Cause I think we were in studio together during that time. Yeah. But honestly, I remember like, I would advise people not to work about that or like, not to worry about I, it or like those forums where people are like oh yeah i don't know they're yeah. too I stressful you'll drive yourself crazy yeah you're just yeah. like oh i got into harvard you're like crap 
Yeah. I haven't gotten my email yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I used to stalk those forums too. Yeah. You just can't help yourself. It was fun. No. It was fun watching, but I bet Danny suffered. <laughs> Honestly, what I what I think okay, what I what I wish I had known is that really you should be checking the Instagrams of the schools and clicking mm-hmm. on the student people like the students who get their work posted on the Instagrams or like who take part in workshops. Mm-hmm. Because what, when I was looking at schools, I was trying to do all of the conventional wisdom of like, look at all the professors' research and see what they're doing. But almost always that stuff is like three or four years behind. Like, it's right. really hard to find up-to-date information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, relying just on the school's website, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for most of the school's like when I was just going in blind trying to find information, I was looking at course course listings from like five years ago. Oh no. Yeah. And it's just like, what does this tell me? I don't know. <laughs> Eventually I just started asking instructors if they knew anyone at those schools that I could talk to. Mm-hmm. And that helped a lot more. Yeah, that is very useful because I think our professors are so willing to like connect us because they they want their students to go to great schools too mm-hmm. yeah, you know they're not like oh me. you you have to come here you know come back to our school for grad school i think that was not a thing they were very supportive of like i know people here 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 i can connect you um so that was really nice it's a great tip especially if there's like an alumni network you can mm-hmm. kind of tap into mm-hmm. or like I don't know. It's easier now being on this side where I know our classmates who went to the different schools. So I think that the like stalking the Instagram and and the student, the current student work is also very like you you'll see a very different like vibe for each school. And I think that was one of the things that I remember we talking about when you were applying because they were like looking for different things and each school kind of values different things. Like some are more out there, more like, you know, let's build a building on Mars. The other ones are more theory and the other ones are more technological. So that's a very, especially with the Ivy League schools, I feel like they're very specific. And I think that if you understand that ahead of time and you you think about what you prefer Mm -hmm. um it could save some time of like i don't even apply if you want to design a building in mars you know (laughs) yeah and while instagram is like curated because obviously it's done by the school i think it's definitely more transparent than almost like a a website where it's almost like a it reads like a brochure right yeah it's kind of surface level whereas like it's cool to see actual student work and things that you could do yourself yeah that's cool yeah, so I think, I don't know. And then also the other thing that is just the unfortunate reality is like your decision making before and after you get financial offers is like totally different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there was like curating down to, I don't know, I had like a little spreadsheet of like all the schools that I thought I could apply to and then like eventually kind of narrowed it down. And sometimes it was arbitrary, like, I don't like the weather in this place. <laughs> Michigan so, is very cold. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in our grad school episode, we talked about how important environment is. Yeah. I mean, you're going to be there for three, three and a half years. You yeah. want to make sure you're okay. Yeah. Cost of living, like that's all accounted for. Yeah. Yeah. But it, so like after 
getting the financial offers, it felt like the whole process just started over again right. for me, at least, because it was like certain schools were just totally off the list. Like, okay, mm -hmm. I didn't get enough money here for this to be yeah. worth it at all. And then like trying to negotiate with the schools, like... <laughs> Which I didn't know you could do. Yeah. You can negotiate. <laughs> Honestly, a, a lot of schools, I think, are trying to end that completely. <laughs> but you can be like, hey, MIT gave me this much. And then Columbia, can you match yeah. that offer? <laughs> I, it still doesn't hurt to ask. I think yeah. Yeah. it's definitely worth, uh, I don't know if a lot of students know that you could almost challenge whatever you receive yeah. a little bit. And if they can't do it, they can't. But. And if it is the school that you are really wanting to go to, that like, that's your top choice you can tell them like this is my top choice i really want to go there but financially i would have to choose something else so can we work with this yeah <laughs> i also when i was negotiating i i was very like very specific about numbers and was like look i don't want to make this like too about numbers but like x number of dollars more and i would come here over harvard so Oh, wow. Like, I like that strategy. <laughs> this is how much it would take. Yeah, they probably liked it too. They're like, this kid knows what he wants. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I shouldn't, I didn't get like a ton more money from my negotiating, but it was a small enough little offer from MIT that I, it made me feel more like they wanted me there mm. or versus if they are just totally mm -hmm. stonewalling you yeah it's, yeah I don't know but then open houses after going to the open houses I was I was pretty set on MIT because it it reminds me of Georgia Tech a little bit but surprisingly so I thought I thought going to another tech school might be a bad call or I thought <laughs> maybe that's too similar mm -hmm. but it's more MIT is way more theory than Georgia Tech, hmm. like Georgia Tech felt like application of technology was mm -hmm. really important. And at MIT, it, at least in the architecture school, it feels they don't really care so much if you can apply the technology as much <laughs> as like you can think about why it's being applied. Okay. Oh, wow. I could probably like, get through that then. <laughs> I can yeah, study yeah. about it. I can't really do it. <laughs> You're like, this would be cool. Yeah. In theory. Yeah. And let's move on after that. <laughs> and I mean, like, there's still, I'm sure compared to, like, a more liberal arts degree or something, I'm sure MIT is still more technical yeah. like, mm -hmm. application than that. Um, but I don't know. I thought, I, I really liked the attitude about how critical they were of technology and they're very like mm -hmm. in my mind it appeared very socially conscious of like mm. what the new technologies should be used for and whatnot right that's um, interesting yeah so you ended yeah. at MIT then as, as your decision yeah. um I guess like what are the what are your thoughts on um you know overall like you went to the open house um, we wanted to kind of dive into your experience at MIT so far, so you could kind of, you know, give a rundown of your thoughts on the culture there, I guess, starting out, it kind of maybe the, the studio environment and what the people are like. The culture is 
Okay, so I feel like the the culture that is really normal at architecture schools is like the competitive studio where everyone's kind of like hiding their work. <laughs> and this was something that was super desirable, but MIT doesn't feel like that at all. Mm-hmm. The good. classes are pretty small and everyone has such weird backgrounds. <laughs> really? Like, <laughs> it doesn't feel like any of the people are trying to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So nobody is competing Oh. Or I don't know, it's not like perfect world, but like our interests within a studio class will be so different that it's mm-hmm. like there's yeah. no no way the projects can even be compared. Like Yeah. Right. And they like give the freedom to, to for people to kind of take it wherever they they want because they yeah. have different interests. That's interesting, yeah. I have uh parentheses here. Um someone who should not be named but he works with admissions in mit and he said that they try to find like the most unique like dinosaur people (laughs) yeah for students like they just try to find the people with the most different kind of like backgrounds and kind of like crazy animals that would that not they don't all fit a box i love that yeah and throw them all together yeah so that makes total sense what you're saying (laughs) They yeah, that, that fits with my experience. Awesome. But, and I mean, also, like, a lot of the people who go to MIT were also considering GSD, like Harvard mm-hmm. across the street. And a lot of the feeling in MIT was like, after touring Harvard, we kind of thought, like, felt too intense or. Oh, interesting. I don't know. Yeah. Like it maybe does seem not to, productive. Yeah, it does seem to have a more like competitive culture, and just because of the name, probably people probably like feel very like entitled to, right. you know, how good they are already starting off. Yeah, and I feel like that would be kind of stressful. But I still would have. I guess I wouldn't have guessed that. You know, since MIT is a tech school, I guess you wouldn't know whether which environment would be more intense. I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it seems like MIT in general is more of a, not relaxed, but seems like everyone's kind of doing their own thing and the vibe is just more team-like. It, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's, so it's definitely intense, but the intensity comes from the people. or I don't know. It's like the most intense people I've ever met. They just okay. aren't competing with each other. Yeah. They're competing against themselves. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Competition. Yeah. <laughs> What's the uh, faculty like? You kind of touched on them letting you experiment on your own and things like that. The faculty, it's kind of really hard to say. It feels pretty transitional right now. Mm-hmm. Or So when I, when I applied, I think I had listed three faculty that I wanted to work with. And when I got here, two of them were at other schools and one, mm-hmm. one was in what in rome doing like rome prize stuff within one year of you applying they were they left or, <laughs> i yeah, don't know i guess yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's quite transitional <laughs> so another reason why you shouldn't just look at the faculty when you're applying to schools yeah yeah that's true so i mean the faculty that are here have been 
So I guess their their work is way more research focused than professional practice focused generally, I guess. Like there aren't that many people who are licensed architects teaching at MIT. I don't know. It's like people who might be considered artists or Mm -hmm. sometimes filmmakers or like pure theorists. Mm. I can't tell what the general feeling of the faculty is because all schools kind of go through cycles, right? Where the instructors, some kind of intellectual movement forms and stays for a while and changes again. MIT feels very in flux right now, Mm. but the young fellows that, so the school has a fellowship program like Georgia Tech's, or I think it has like two or three. And I've really enjoyed those people. They're kind of like fresh out of grad school people who want to go into academia and have really wacky ideas. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think I have a lot of like learning to do if I want to practice architecture. (laughs) (laughs) Traditional architecture, I guess. Yeah. Right. Um, So... Yeah, I, I guess you kind of touched on the fellowships at MIT. Are there other specific programs at MIT that maybe drew you in or I guess if that you've taken people... part of? Yeah. Okay, of course, the, the notorious one, the Media Lab. Because when I was just arriving here was when the whole Epstein funding scandal was happening. Oh. Where certain I don't know like certain labs within the media lab had taken funding from oh wow from some unsavory places oh, um, I don't think I knew about this yeah I've never heard tea. About this. <laughs> yeah well I, I mean it's like when I first got here the media lab was a little it was kind of in hot water and it was a little bit like people weren't sure should we be taking classes here oh. Oh, so what happens at the media lab? I'm very unqualified to describe the structure of it because I really don't know how it works. But I think (laughs) it's like it's like MIT's version of trying to have like a startup kind of incubator space. And it's sort of the idea is that these are like really cutting edge researchers who come and start they get funding to start their own groups within the media lab. So like. For example, I think Neri Oxman started the, I don't remember the name of her group, it's like Mediated Ecology or something, Mm -hmm. but there's like the Fluid Interfaces group and like all these groups. I guess they kind of like, there are Media Lab specific degrees, so people specifically come to the Media Lab to be a researcher for one of these groups. Okay. And they take some classes, but they mainly work for the lab and they get, there's a degree that kind of comes out of that. Okay. Oh, wow. Um, but so architecture students can take classes there. I've taken a couple and they're kind of, I feel like they're extremely hit or miss. <laughs> like, I feel like any kind of like startup kind of focused thing. Mm-hmm. Some of the classes turn out to be amazing and others... A mess. A little less organized, I guess. (laughs) I've always thought they have the cleanest air of any building I've ever been in. It feels like the air of people with a lot of funding. (laughs) Is this what rich people air is like? It's beautiful in there, yeah. 
Oh, you've been in there? Yeah, we went there when we went for the Portman trip to okay. Boston. I would. It's I loved my classes there because I I could just sit outside in the hallway and it felt so good to be in that building. Wow. <laughs> well. Yeah, they were treated well. Yeah. Some I don't know. There's there. also okay. There's the self assembly lab, which is a lab that I thought would be a big part of my experience here when I came, but then I realized it. This is why you need to do the Instagram searching because it turns out that that's more of an undergraduate thing. Oh, oh interesting. And like, uh, it's kind of hard to get involved in that as a graduate student, so I didn't bother. If you take the MARC degree like I did, you have like a super strict course load mm. where they they say you have to take classes in all of these different things to have like a well-rounded architecture education. Mm-hmm. And SMARCS is the, it's the postgraduate version of the degree where if you already have a professional architecture degree, you can come and for two years, I think you take, there might be one mandatory class, but you just take what you want to like Whoa. build your own curriculum. Oh, wow. Is that something you would have done if you had a five year? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. As I get to the end of this degree, I'm like starting to think, do I want more degrees? Do I want more? <laughs> I don't think I want more. More school? Yeah, not not right away. But that's good. You need a break. Some yeah. people like being an academic for a long time, though. You know, like they they just love school and just keep adding on degrees. Get a PhD, PhD. Danny. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> he's like breaking know. news. I'm getting a PhD, you guys. <laughs> I kind of see now why, or like the the idea of okay, the funding isn't. You're not like making a ton of money as a PhD, but I can mm-hmm. see the the draw of it mm-hmm. of having a stable like I don't know. You're kind of just breaking even with expenses, yeah. and you yeah. get to just go on your intellectual journey. Or... Right, especially if you're really passionate about something, and you know you could research it for years on end. And yeah. I mean, I remember when we had Yusuf on, and he talked about his PhD experience, and it sounded really great i remember telling him i was like i kind of want to get a phd yeah i definitely (laughs) thought about it yeah and uh a lot of time architecture students don't even think that's a option um guess i guess it's not the traditional thing you think of for a phd but cool um do you want to talk a little bit about what the campus is like at mit it feels like like 50 different college towns all just mashed together one after another Mm -hmm. like because if you cross the river, you're at Boston University, and there's, there's so like, many schools. That's the really there's, cool thing about Boston. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. The campus is really cool. It's really unique, but it does make me feel a little bit like I don't know if I could afford to stay here. It almost feels like too propped up by education, or like maybe if I moved farther oh, out right. into Boston. Mm-hmm. It's like too but. much like a college town, but you're not in a town. It's kind of how I imagine like, you know, Penn State, mm-hmm. like their whole town just revolves around Penn State. So I'm always imagining like, how do people live there after unless yeah. you're really gung-ho about Penn State? It's like running yeah, your life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. Yeah. How do you, do you interact with other schools like Harvard and what other architecture schools are around there? Um, wasn't there one more? There's like Wesleyan and... 
UMass. There's one I, um, I passed by. It was like... Oh, Boston it, Architectural College. Yeah, right. that one. Oh, yeah. I think it's small, though. Really small. They have a cool building. Yeah, that's what I saw. And we're, like, walking in Boston a couple of weeks ago, and all of a sudden we see, like, models on the, on the window. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. We... So... A lot of the school, I, I mean, part of the draw of coming to the schools here is there's a lot of cross-registration. Oh, okay. Where I think within some network of these schools, you can cross-register. So I, I know that we can cross-register for Harvard classes. Okay, I think we I can also that. cross-register at Wesleyan. I'm not oh. sure, though. Is this for um, architecture classes as well? I think... I think for maybe any classes, mm-hmm. okay. like I think if you, if you really wanted from MIT, you could probably take like Harvard business school classes. Okay. Um, yeah. I that's definitely a great thing. Like if you're considering those two schools and it's like, it's not the end of the world. Like if there's something really crazy happening at Harvard that you want to be part of, it's definitely doable. Plus it's really close. So if there's a lecture or anything, you can attend the events yeah. and all that. That that's the good thing about Cambridge. Yeah. Cuz everything's so close. Yeah, so it's there's a lot of like cross-pollination of like we will walk down to Harvard for their lectures and then like we meet the Harvard students in that's the so hallways cool. at MIT cuz they come for events there. Wow. That's more than I expected, I guess. I didn't really know if what the interaction between all the schools were like, but that's awesome. It seems like one kind of almost like big architect- architecture community. Yeah. Um, Are they competitive? Do they come like, ew, MIT, gross. She's <laughs> <laughs> like, out. look at all these stressed out Harvard kids. <laughs> I don't know. It's, I mean, the, the uh, culture of Harvard is just so much different. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't really know what they think of us. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, okay, so what are some of the like job opportunities, both like in in the school, like TA and that stuff, but also like what have you been doing in the summers? Because I know you've you've been working. Um, so and and how does that like? Because you're obviously not doing traditional architecture, so like. How do you come yeah. about those opportunities? The normal jobs at the school are, I feel like they're similar to what you have in other schools where like you can get paid to be a shop monitor. You can apply to be like the department photographer and like, oh, fun. Get, get paid to like photograph lectures and and that sort of thing. I actually haven't gotten an RA ship uh, in one of the labs because those are actually more reserved for like the people who come here specifically to do that. Mm-hmm. That's research um, assistant, right? Yeah. Um, but teaching assistantships are more common. So like they let the masters of architecture students TA the, like the undergrad design classes. And okay. those are fun. The MIT undergrads are very similar to Georgia tech undergrads. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> You know, like the the quirky kind of like engineer yeah. students, right? Coming from two Georgia Tech undergrad students, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But so we have we have two breaks in the year, like or there's summer 
break and between the fall and spring semesters there's like we get january off mm. and for us oh. that's called the independent activities period <laughs> It's not the take a breather period. Yeah, you can't just say you're going on break. <laughs> no. It's like be productive, please. Dependent. Activity. Yeah, they kind of want. I mean, they there's no pressure to do anything, but it's kind of like they'll have workshops and stuff. That's kind of nice though. Like we could have started our podcast during school if we had that. Yeah, that could have been our independent activity <laughs> to explore. But Yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. I did not know MIT did that. So do you guys have your semester that ends in Christmas break and then it starts again in February then instead of January? Okay, interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and so the the most of the jobs that I've been working have been after the first semester we had this like architecture skills class and I I emailed the professor at the end asking if he had any work and that's how I started that first IAP. I started working for this professor whose firm is called J-Rock Design. And I've just worked there for <laughs> like, that's, mo- I feel like that's common with the employment at MIT is like most of the professors get funding to support their personal practice. Mm. So you kind of like find a professor you get along with and then they start to like save a portion of their funding to keep hiring you back. Because mm-hmm. like I have friends who have worked at the other, there's like Kennedy Violich Architects and Matter Design. Um, so like all of these little like professor run practices Mm-hmm. because you're getting funding through the school they don't have you don't have to do real architecture mm-hmm. they're free to like you can do fabrication experiments or mm-hmm. publish a book or you know oh, yeah. wow. it's more like free yeah it seems like it kind of follows the theme of the professors not being you know always typical licensed architects that you kind of follow whatever research they're doing that's really cool did you do that over the summers as well yeah, I did I did one other summer job where I went to Kansas City to work in research and development um at a at Zayner the sheet metal place. Um oh, wow. But after the pandemic, all of my like summer plans kind of fell through and I've just been so like last summer I just worked with this professor again and I'm I'm starting this summer again working for this same professor. Cool. Which is kind of cool, I guess, because it's like s- split into many little chunks between the degree. It's like by the end, I'll have like a year and a half of work experience for one yeah. employer, mm-hmm. which is kind of convenient. Yeah. Yeah. What's your day to day like? At, um, is it, I'm guessing it's not like a traditional firm where you're, you know, drafting and doing Revit and stuff. So I think this is an interesting topic to touch on for people who are trying to maybe branch out of that typical norm. So it, it's good to hear other experiences. So This particular firm, every time that I've worked there before, it has been two employees total, the principal and me. <laughs> small, small firm. So, it, yeah, it's like the smallest possible firm, I guess. <laughs> um, but, I mean, what's fun about that is that 
the principal, Jeremy, he has, I mean, he's, he does mostly like residential around Boston. So he, he would typically have house projects that were like either in design development or it like actually being constructed. And then I would be doing some kind of research thing with his research funding. But whenever he needed help on the actual architecture, oh, he okay. could pull me over to that and I would I, I would get to see a little bit of that process. But I would not like I, I haven't been claiming in carb hours for this or <laughs> Do you miss doing that? Like is that something that during school you you're not doing as much but when you do it a little bit at work is that something that you're still happy doing or you don't want to do that ever again <laughs> yeah that touches on our career goals kind yeah. of question like what i know it's a loaded question being like what what are you going to do with your future not necessarily that but i guess long term are you thinking you might transition back to a traditional role or not yeah well i definitely okay I would I would like to have a license or it seems like so much education to not be able to stamp right. my own drawings. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's where I'm at as well. I'm like, at this point, I'm just doing it because I made it this far. Because you got so. a master's. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes I get bored with the idea of like client facing and like whatever, mm -hmm. mixing around the program i don't really want to become an architect working in a traditional firm mm -hmm. but at this point i'm definitely looking at it like a, a risk reward or like a stability kind of thing right. uh, anything other than that is very unstable mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so like want if like people who want to go into academia For example, it's like very hard to plan 10 years in the future with something like that. Mm -hmm. Or like things like eventually buying a house or something like I don't know about. Yeah, because right. funding like comes and goes. Then there's a pandemic and they cut all the funding <laughs> and you're like, what am I going to do? Yeah, but yeah. I mean, architecture roles aren't really safe from that either. Yeah. But um But th there's a, a bit more structure to the business and, you know. Yeah. But. Yeah, that's true. There are research arms of big firms or you know, even small firms now. We, we yeah. kind of touched on, on that, the usage well, episode. The summer that I worked in research and development was very fun and made me think that, I don't know, that's almost more like product design now. Or yeah. like, I, I feel like that kind of role leads to like working for places like nike or ford mm -hmm. if you want stability i think stability is overrated to be honest <laughs> yeah most yeah it's just like it's kind of like I, there's definitely more stable jobs than others but i think the stable jobs that we consider stable aren't as stable as we think they are that's a good it's like point. a perception that we have because people can just fire you with no reason <laughs> yeah they do have that power not that anyone would fire you danny you're great <laughs> well i don't know <laughs> yeah that's a good point though yeah i guess my answer then is i want to be in some kind of experimental role where occasionally it can be free from like just budgeting mm -hmm. yeah 
It seems like your current job is kind of like that, you know, where you're able to do some research, but then as needed, you'll kind of enter back into the traditional architecture stuff. Um, but I'm sure there's opportunities out there where there's a balance of both. Um, even for me, I'm like, that'd be nice just to break up my day and not consistently be clicking away, <laughs> which yeah. is almost like it feels like you have to do your time in that sometimes. But I think ultimately especially nowadays, I think there's room for doing other stuff during your day. And I'm sure that like going to MIT for grad school has connected you with a lot of people that are more aware of, you know, more unique opportunities. Like you said, like not all the professors are traditional licensed architects. So, you know, you can definitely connect with people and probably find options that you wouldn't find, you know, Googling. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I'm just looking at it now and I'm a little bit like in in awe that these people have managed to get to these positions. <laughs> how, did, how did you do that? Like, yeah. I, don't really, I don't really understand the point A to point B mm-hmm. that right. leads to those kind of very desirable positions. I'm sure it's a lot of luck. Yeah. Um, yeah. It almost seems like either like a domino effect or like kind of like what happened with you like even just like going to japan and learning about robotics like i feel like everyone has like a random pivotal moment that like kind of leads them to an opportunity and i feel like we see the end point of people but i'm sure they had like thousands of decisions (laughs) before and years of like being kind of stagnant Mm -hmm. on something and not knowing what they're doing well give us some names maybe we'll interview them (laughs) (laughs) and we'll find out for you (laughs) all right um let's talk about your most recent semester at mit and the really cool unique project yeah so i made a children's book (laughs) in my final architecture studio you can do that as a career (laughs) clearly you've done it (laughs) well my professor wanted to talk she was like you should actually publish it like for real and I was like huh I don't what if you publish it sell like millions of copies and then you just retire (laughs) (laughs) at the ripe age young age (laughs) mid-20s so the the reason that children's book happened was okay I think it's a little bit of like MIT had been online for like a year and a half at this point or for a year at this point. So we were going into our third online semester. I kind of think that because of that, people were a little, like the Institute generally was a little bit maybe worn out and like needing a mental break. So the architecture studios were pretty experimental. And Mm. this one that I took, it was co-instructed by by two instructors, one in the first half, one in the second half. And it they weren't there was like not communication between the two halves. And that wasn't the point of it. It was supposed to be for the first seven weeks, we uh, work with this teaching fellow named Rosalind Shie, who her her research is about like personal experience as it relates to architecture. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Which is, that was a foreign concept to me. Very I abstract. Thought, 
but I it also makes all... sense when I really think about it. <laughs> yeah. I thought we all had to be like professional image, like don't show any, any humanity. <laughs> um, but her work is for her. It's about like Taiwanese culture. She's, she's Taiwanese and basically just saying that that is inseparable. So things like, personal letters and memoirs and things are like, even if we don't understand how they relate to architecture, they are part of us. So they're mm -hmm. important. So we have to make space to talk about them. So I was freaking out with this studio because I was like, I do not want to be personal at all. <laughs> and the exercises were like the most harmless it was like we would have a check-in question and then we would just talk as a group and we would like seemingly nothing was happening but we were like <laughs> sounds like therapy yeah it, it is a little bit like group therapy but where we were basically like remembering our childhoods and talking about i don't know talking about problems that we have and like Whoa. what we think about architecture school oh like and that. there were almost no deliverables. Like we didn't have to make anything necessarily. For the first half? Yeah. And for the second half, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> like he said, they were burnt out. Yeah, they're, they're like, we're just going to hang out this semester. <laughs> it's weird because it was so productive also. Like we were not drawing plans or sections or anything. Or like the instructors weren't forcing us to do anything. We're just talking. My project, I wanted to talk about lawn mowing. Because <laughs> I was like reflecting on childhood and thinking, okay, part of my part of my thinking was like, okay, as a white male in this space, like, what am I here? To, like, what is important about, or like suburban middle-class America? Like, why is that worth talking about in this space where people are talking about very important things? like like mixed race identity or like class struggle so I was like I don't really want to make this about me and my family and like who cares because um, <laughs> like I really didn't have that many problems in the grand scheme of things I was very privileged um, but as I was thinking back on it as an architecture student, looking at my childhood, I was like, why do we have such a big lawn? Like, what is this? Because <laughs> I remember like every weekend as a kid, I would have to go mow this enormous lawn. It took hours. <laughs> and I was like, what are we? As a kid, you can't question that. <laughs> right. But <laughs> yeah, now as an adult, we're like, that's a lot of maintenance. And I don't know if I want yeah. that. <laughs> that's why so... people have kids. <laughs> <laughs> so... I don't know. My project turned into like, a, I just started reading lots about lawn mowing and like oh. American dream kind of suburbanism mm -hmm. and all of these really problematic ideals of mm -hmm. like, you have to have a curated lawn and like, you have to show off for your neighbors. Yeah. Right. Sprawl. Which is all just absurd. Like the neighborhood requires that you mow your lawn. Yeah. Doesn't it? <laughs> That's crazy. Oh, and, yeah. like, there are harsh violations if you don't do that. And then, like, there's so many environmental problems of, like, pesticide and water use. Mm -hmm. And 
even like emissions from lawnmowers. It's oh just my like, God. it's just like a disaster. And I was just a kid mowing the lawn. <laughs> Contributing um, to these horrible things. <laughs> yeah. So the children's book was the suggestion of my instructor. Cause I was drawing these little vignettes of yard work. I was like, drawing here's where I rake the leaves by the HVAC units like I don't know why we have three HVAC units that seems a little absurd but it was like so it started from a negative place like casting all of these kind of really asinine kind of maintenance activities that we really didn't need to do if we just were living on a sensibly sized lot that matched our means or you know Mm -hmm. um and then I started like adding adding like all the things that I liked about those activities like caterpillars and whatever all the plants and bugs in the yard that from a child's eyes are like so fascinating and but then there's there's that duality of like all the parts of this that I like I'm like destroying with a lawnmower (laughs) you know like yeah it's like why can't we let the weeds grow yeah i thought that was so cute you're like oh the weeds they look like the other plants why do we have to pull them out (laughs) yeah yeah and also rosalind was having her baby that semester which is why she couldn't teach the second half so i was extra motivated to finish a children's book to give to her (laughs) oh you gave it to your professor yeah (laughs) that's so cute so That's why so much effort was put into it. Mm-hmm. So it's like this, this too perfect. The stars mm-hmm. are aligning. So I had to like yeah. spend all my time drawing uh, ladybugs <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. And then the second half of the studio was just kind of like fleshing it out and like mm-hmm. thinking more about those questions of like, what if we did just let all of the weeds grow? Like, would that really be the end of the world? The answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, we'll definitely post um, photos of it on our Instagram. Um, and so everyone can see. But the illustrations are really, really nice. And I really love the theme um, of just kind of the child's kind of perspective. Um, I think it's really refreshing. But at the same time, I can see the parallel of like architecture in it too, because it's directly your environment. Um, but yeah, kind of like what you were saying where I think everyone thinks it needs to be very curated, like architecture is very clean cut and not messy. Um, I like this kind of, uh, lens. It's a, it's like a innocent critique of suburbia. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I was really happy that it was my last studio or it felt like kind of wrapping up, like. I think because if I had done that studio really early on in school, I probably would have found it very frustrating. Like, how is this going to get me a job? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right. By the end, you're just like, I'm just trying to have some fun here. (laughs) Yeah. So it was like super refreshing and helped helped me like connect a lot of dots in my own interests and realize Mm -hmm. like I could talk about these things if I want and people will listen. Yeah. And it's so nice to have like a, a package like thing that you produce. It's like, this is what I did this semester. And it's like, 
in a pretty book. <laughs> the, the process of making a children's book was really funny because like all of my classmates were sharing their recommendations for their favorite books. And so oh. I was like, I was like compiling precedents and reading through children's books and like oh nostalgic the like the the hungry hungry caterpillar mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> kind of rem- your book kind of reminded me of like that vibe but um lastly let's talk about architecture industry in general we always ask this uh, in our interviews but like what is something that you would want to change if you had superpowers or if you actually can do this, like what's something that you want to change in the industry? Yeah, I really like this question to end on. Um, <laughs> I, also, I also like hearing what other people have to say about this. I was thinking, or something that has kind of bothered me throughout a lot of architecture school is one that we kind of look at the same set of precedents over and over to talk about this discipline. So rather than like all of the buildings that people actually live in, we talk about the same kind of Corbusier houses and whatever, mm-hmm. as if those are like representative of this entire field. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the, the problem, what I would solve that I think is part of that is like, I wish we had less of an image focused way of valuing architecture and we could talk more about like well okay I think like capital and labor costs would be a really good way to think about stuff but like when you see projects that seem really cool and like like you think wow I wish I could do that often what is behind that might be like thousands of unpaid intern hours or right some private investment or like I don't know. I think we we look at the wrong projects as a, as examples of good design. So I don't know if a price tag could come with every project, maybe. Yeah. Right. Maybe a little bit more transparency into what it actually took to make this project. And yeah. I'm always curious to know if people actually enjoy living in these projects yeah. or not living, maybe experiencing like what it, where is it today? Like how has it been yeah. maintained? And um, I think we touch on that a little bit with not to like like you know like an example like the rem cool house stuff sometimes like you'll actually the seattle library yeah yeah like you know we learn about it we see it in photos but then you go and experience it and you're like this is actually a lot different than i thought yeah um doesn't, doesn't work doesn't work and but i think it should be discussed you know yeah. that you know some t- something can look really great but you need to look at the functionality yeah it's like it could be an inspiration i think it sets unrealistic expectations for us as students to think that, first of all, that when you're out of school, you're going to be working on projects like that. And second of all, it's like, those are not ideal projects that you should be trying to do because like they, yeah, they're inspirational or like they do something really well and they use this material really well, but it might be lacking on other things or it might have, like you said, unpaid people behind it, unpaid workers, you know, um, all sorts of conflicts that you're not aware of and it's just like it's very discouraging to think about that as like oh i need to be designing like villa savoie once a week to be a good architect you know yeah yeah especially for students when you like 
you're looking to professors for guidance on like what is good architecture and you get a bunch of like privately backed like yeah homes like, right is that really yeah yeah so true yeah i would change that too <laughs> anyway thank you so much for talking with us where so tell us your instagram so people can follow and find out what you're working on great stuff gri dot d f a b yes we'll put it down in the description and then we'll also put a link to his book if you want to buy one <laughs> yes and encourage to. him to publish it <laughs> crowdsource <laughs> um is there anywhere else you want people to find you or i guess um, out to you? And i don't know if you want to see my work it's on my website dannygriffin.design but i think that's on my instagram too yeah and if you're interested in going to mit definitely talk to danny oh yeah reach out yeah. and I can tell you the behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah. I think this interview was really great for kind of doing that. You know, like a lot, I learned a lot, you yeah. know, there's a lot that you can see from a school's website, but yeah, just the culture <laughs> and how studios are run. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, we appreciate thank you for having me guys. Yeah. A lot of fun. See you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>So we hope you enjoyed this interview with Danny. And as always, you can find us at Open Plan Podcast on Instagram or on our website, openplanpodcast.com. Yeah, and listen to us um, wherever you listen to podcasts, Spotify, Apple, and our web player. All right, bye, guys. Bye. bye.